Good morning, Baruch Hashem, Boker Tov to everyone. Glad to be with you this morning. Todah for all the prayers that you offered up for me being sick yesterday. And uh, Baruch Hashem, I'm <clears throat> much better today. Uh, far better, Baruch Hashem. Thank God for that. Thank God for uh, a, a day of rest for me. Uh, hallelujah. And uh, sorry for my voice a little bit. Uh, shaky this morning, some sniffles going on, but I'll try to keep that to a minimum as we're looking at the third Aliyah of Mishpatim, uh, Baruch Hashem. So uh, my plan is, God willing, uh, later after this, I will do a podcast version of the second Aliyah. The, uh, it'll be available via, via podcast. So you can go on to the podcast, I'll post a link, and you can get the second Aliyah as well. The third Aliyah today is, uh, as I said, this is Rebetzin's portion, and she was born on, actually on the third day of the week. So the third Aliyah is uh, the very day that she was being born. So we are on the page uh, 427 in your art scroll, Chumash. We are in chapter 22. The third Aliyah, did I say fourth Aliyah? Uh, anyway, it's the third Aliyah. I'm trying to, trying to keep my uh, mind straight here. It's the third Aliyah. And so we are actually beginning the third Aliyah in chapter 22 and verse 4. However, I'm going to begin reading from verse 1 because I just want to capture an insight to verse 1. So let's, let's read. If the thief is discovered while tunneling in and he is struck and dies, there is no blood guilt on his account. <clears throat> if the shun shone upon him, there is blood guilt on his, his account. He shall make restitution. If he has nothing, he shall be sold for his theft. As we said in the first Aliyah, that uh, one could become a slave in, in a couple different ways. One of the ways was that he would be sold into slavery in order to pay back what he had stolen. So it says in verse 3, If the thief shall be found in his possession, uh, If the thief shall be found in his possession, whether a live ox or donkey or sheep or goat, he shall pay double. If a man permits livestock to devour a field or vineyard, whether he set loose his livestock or he grazed it in another's field, from the best of his field and the best of his vineyard shall he pay. If a fire shall go forth and find thorns and a stack of grain or standing crop or a field is consumed, the one who kindled the fire shall make restitution. If a man shall give money or vessels to his fellow to safeguard, and, in, and it is stolen from the house of the man, if the thief is, is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the householder shall approach the court that he had not laid his hand upon the fellow's property. For every item of liability, whether an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or a garment, regarding any lost item about which he says, this is it. To the court shall come both their claims. Whomever the court finds guilty shall pay double his fellow. If a man shall give his fellow a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any animal to safeguard, and it died or was broken or looted without an eyewitness, an oath of a shem shall be between both that he did not lay his hand upon the property of his fellow. The owner shall accept it and he shall not pay. Verse 11 if it shall be stolen from him, he shall pay to its owner. If it shall be a torn to death, he shall produce a witness for a torn animal he does not pay. Verse 13. 
<clears throat> if a man shall borrow from his fellow and it shall become broken or shall provide its owner is not with him, he shall surely make restitution. If its owner is with him, he shall not make restitution. If he was a renter, it came in return for his rental. Verse 15. If a man shall seduce a virgin who is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall produce her with a marriage contract as his wife. If her father refuses to give her to him, he shall weigh out silver according to the marriage contract of the virgins, which, by the way, was 50 shekels. You shall not permit a sorcerer to live. Anyone who lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. You know, reading that verse 18 sounds crazy. It says, anyone who lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Bestiality is what it's talking about. But we see in our day and age, the, the depravity of our times, that this is something that happens in the world still today and is becoming uh, more and more manifest. It's uh, really sad. Verse 19. One who brings offering to the gods shall be destroyed only to Hashem alone. Verse 20. You shall not taunt or oppress a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Mitzrayim. You shall not cause pain to any widow or orphan. If you dare to cause him pain, <coughs> for he shall cry out to me, I shall surely hear his outcry. My wrath shall blaze against you by the sword and your wives and your widows and your children's orphans. When you lend money to people, to the poor person who is with you, do not act toward him as a creditor. And do not lay interest upon him. If you take your fellow's garment as security, until sunset shall you return it to him. That's the end of the reading of the third Aliyah. I want to go all the way back to ver this verse 1 and 22. And read something here from the Kehol Tumash. Because the Kehol Tumash says he takes the risk of mortal combat. Although the way of Torah is that of peace and harmony... You know, we have uh, a well-known fact that God is a God of love. He's, got, he, he's a God who loves shalom. He loves peace. But it's saying here that although the Torah is that of peace and harmony, there are times, such as the case described in this verse, when the Torah advocates violence. Okay? So one, it says one might imagine that violence must be avoided at all costs, that if God wants a person to live a, to a ripe old age... No midnight intruder will interfere with this plan. So there's an idea, and many of there's the, the, the peacenik idea. We want to have peace at all costs, absolutely, um, you know, and would never want to get violent in any way. And besides, God is my protector. If he wants me to live, I'll live. If he wants me to die, I'll die. Many people have that idea, but that is not a Torah idea. It's not a Torah idea. Because... The ultimate uh, utopian world is that we live in a world of peace, that no, nobody should want to harm us, that nobody should want to kill us, nobody should want to steal from us. But we always have to remember a very important principle. That the Torah says you shall live by these commandments. It does not say you should die by them. We're not supposed to be out there as sheep to the slaughter. And that's what the Kehol Tumash is bringing down here. It says here... This verse tells us otherwise. In other words, if we say that God is a God of peace and never wants us to use physical violence, this verse tells us something completely different. I would argue that there's many verses in the Bible that tell us something completely different, but we'll stick with this. This verse tells us otherwise. We must take the life of one who threatens our own. 
So what the Kael Tumash is saying here, according to this verse in the third Aliyah of Mishpatim, it's actually the, this is the uh, verse one I'm talking about, so it's toward the, the very last section of the second Aliyah, that God expects us to use self-defense. We covered this in another Aliyah, it just so happened that Rabbi Monk was talking about this, that Hashem expects us to uh, protect ourselves. You know, he wants us to be glock kosher. So it says here that if someone is threatening our life, then we should defend ourselves. The Torah demands, it writes, that we employ natural measures to ensure our safety, that we create the means for the fulfillment of the verse. Behold, the guardian of Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. Such an attitude prevents bloodshed on both sides, knowing that his foe will respond strongly to provo- provocation the enemy will not attack in the first place, okay? Let me just read that again, because uh, as many of you know, uh, religion and po- politics are closely related. It says here, such an attitude prevents bloodshed. What attitude? The guardian of Israel never slumbers or sleeps. In other words, the attitude that we should protect ourselves and we should be people of peace. That's why you look at the, uh, the national emblem of the United States. The eagle has in one hand, in one, uh, one of its claws, it has arrows. In the other, it has an olive branch. The head of the eagle is turned which way? It's turned towards the olive branch. That was intentional. Why? Because the founders were trying to say that, look, we want peace, which is the olive branch. Our head, our face, is turned towards peace. That's what we want. But in case you don't want peace, we have arrows. So just letting you know. And what does that do? It creates peace. As it says here, knowing this, or having this attitude rather, prevents bloodshed on both sides. Knowing that his foe will respond strongly to provocation, the enemy will not attack in the first place. You know, uh, our daughter, as many of you know, her homeland is Jamaica. And uh, when she was first with us, I was getting into the car one day. We were going to the store, going to a big market. She was wanting to go with me, so she was riding with me. And I was, I was getting into the vehicle, I was uh, holstering my weapon. And uh, she said, Dad, why, why should you bring the weapon? No one's going to, no one's going to trouble us. And I said, I know. That's why I have the weapon. You see? It's a preventative measure. All right. So it says here, going on, it says uh, in verse 5, If a fire should go out and find thorns, and a stack of grain or standing crop or a field is consumed, the one who kindled the fire shall make restitution. I just want to make a point here, because as I read this, I was uh, struck by the fact that it says here, Interesting, it says, if it finds thorns. Now, clearly, what this is talking about is, if you started a fire, somebody started a fire, let's say that you were next-door neighbor, started a fire to burn leaves in his yard or whatever, and uh, the fire uh, ignited, ignited his field, and then as a result, it ignited your field, the one who started the fire, even though he didn't intend to, to burn up your field, he's still, rely- he's still culpable. And we find that uh, the Torah, by the way, the Torah is very, very practical. 
This is the this is the beautiful thing about the Torah law is the Torah impacts us on every single level of our life, body, soul, and spirit. And so here we're just dealing with practical things. We're dealing with practical uh, issues between human beings. But I want to look at this on a little bit of a spiritual level. It's funny that the Torah says if it finds thorns. What are thorns? Thorns are you are are worthless briar. Sometimes I guess uh, they can ignite easier because of just the nature of what they are. But thorns, in my view, represent uh, represent sin. Represents bad character. Really, let's really deal with that. Re- represents bad character. Someone who has a bad outlook on life, a negative personality. Someone who has a chip on their shoulder. Somebody who. Uh, Who's just waiting as as uh, waiting to be offended or whatever? Uh, just that type of attitude. And if you have those kinds of thorns in your life, you 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 run the risk of when somebody else lights a fire. Right? They don't intend necessarily to ignite your field, but because you have all these thorns laid out everywhere, it ignites your field. You have a bad attitude. You have negative feeling. You're quick tempered. You are uh, suspicious of everybody, thinking everybody's talking about you. By the way, it's not easy to discuss, but the reality is, is when we have those feelings, when, when we're easily offended, when we think everybody's talking about us, when we're negative, when, when we are critical of other people, when we uh, focus on the negative and we constantly speak Lashon Hara, all of that is pride and arrogance. All of it. All of it's pride and arrogance. Because we're the center of our universe. We're the center of our universe. We think that everybody says something and it has to do with us. Because naturally it has to be. If they said something negative, it has to be about us. You know, this has happened to me many times over the years. I can't tell you how many times that I've got up into, uh, into a drosh and somebody will come up to me and say, you were talking to me, weren't you? As if I knew their situation. And uh, I said, absolutely not. And the, let me give you, let me give you, I'll tell you a story. This happened a number of years ago. This couple was coming to the service and they had been attending for a while and then we didn't see them again. And so after a couple of weeks, I got concerned because we didn't see them. So I reached out to the man. He said, I should meet you for coffee. So we did. So I met him and I said, what's going on? He said, well, my wife and I are not coming back. I said, well, why not? He said, because every single week we show up, you're talking to us from the message. And I said, okay. And he thought that somehow I was aware of of, uh, what they were going through. or so I don't know, I had some type of ESB. And then I sat down and I created a drosh specifically focused on them. And the truth of the matter is I haven't the foggiest idea anything about what was going on with them. But instead of listening to the word and saying, okay, Hashem is trying to work on something, they thought that I was, uh, you know, speaking to them personally and negatively. And what, what's the problem behind that? They have too many thorns. That they, in this case, they're the center of their own universe. And I'm just saying, as we're looking at this particular verse, it says, if a fire breaks out and it spreads across the thorns so that it consumes a stacked or standing pile of grain. Don't let yourself have negative personality flaws, right? 
that allow your stack of standing grain to be consumed. Because that happens too often to too many wonderful people. They have a wonderful stack of grain that Hashem has built, that they have, have, have been nurturing. And then because of an, a personality flaw, they allow some fire that somebody started that's not even intended for them to ignite them. Anyway, I just want you to hear the message and all that. So <clears throat> I want to skip over to something here from Pituke Chotam uh, to verse uh, 17 of our passage here where it says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. So I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit because I want to cover a couple of things. So it says here in Pituke Chotam, sorcery is from the powers of the Lilith. Now Lilith is a demonic, is a demon, basically a female demon. Um, and uh, according to sword, the sources, she's the... Uh, the mother, so to speak, of all demons. The sorcery is from the powers of Lilith, the evil angel who is the evil klepa, that is the shell, and the klepa represents the negative forces, the evil side. A person who practices sorcery gives strength to the sitra akra and weakens the forces of holiness. So the verse says, you should not permit a sorceress to live, the first letters of the words, of the words, which is mem lamedate, and the last letters hey aleph hey, have a total value of four eighty one, which is the same as Lilith, the one added for the word itself. This is a hint that sorcery is derived from the Sitra Akra, which is Lilith, and gives it life. Furthermore, the word mekashefe sorceress is comprised of the letters Mach Sofa, which carries the following meaning. The letters Shin Pei Hei have the numerical value of 385, which is the same as Shekinah. The letters Mach mean lowliness. Thus, sorcery causes the Shekinah to be lowered, and therefore, you should not be permitted, should not be permitted to live. Now, obviously, if you're listening to this, you probably realize that sorcery is evil. And sorcery encompasses a lot of different things. It encompasses, you know, seances, uh, tarot cards, etc., etc. But I just wanted to read this because sometimes we, we don't understand the level of evil that these things are. And so here we're talking about sorcery is actually detracting from holiness. Why? Because it pulls upon the other side, the klipa. The other thing I wanted to mention that the Pote uh, Hotam brings down is to verse 19 through 20, where it says, One who sacrifices to the gods shall be destroyed. Sacrifice only to Adonai alone. The stranger you shall not taunt or oppress, for you were strangers in the land of Mitzrayim. So he writes, the, juxt the juxtaposition of these two verses implies the following. A person who comes to convert, who was previously an idolater, the Jewish people must be careful not to taunt him by saying, only yesterday you were an idolater and now you want to come under the wings of the Shekinah. For as the Gemara says in Bava Metzia 105b, do not criticize your fellow for a blemish that you too possess. 
when the Jewish people were in Egypt, they were also idolaters. As I've said numerous times before, the reality is that uh, the very first Jewish person, the one who started our entire faith, the one who started the entire religion, was himself a convert. I'm talking, of course, about Avraham, Avinu. But if that were not enough, we have to understand that when we were in uh, Mitzrayim, we too were idolaters. So we're not allowed, we are not allowed to uh, oppress, as it were, the, uh, the foreigner, the convert. I want to say here um, what Rabbi Monk says about this verse. He says, you shall not taunt or oppress a stranger. This verse is connected with both the previous verse and the following verses, as it is evident from the absence of the Masoretic pause. The link with the next verse expresses the idea that Adonai protects the convert, the widow, the orphan, and the poor, making their troubles his very own. This teaches that serving Hashem is incompatible with insensitivity and inhumanity. I just want to, again, point this out because when we talk about the widow or the orphan or even the poor people, we know that God has spoken that he is their guardian. He's the one who protects them. He's the one that shelters them. But this also applies to the convert. This is the special position of the convert in Torah. I want to continue what Rabbi Monk says here. It says, the link with the previous verse teaches that every Jew, including those of the purest and noblest origins, deserve death if he strays from the Jewish doctrine of pure monotheism. From this follows that even a former non-Jew, once he accepts the doctrine of monotheism and follows the law of Israel, deserves full equality and acceptance as a Jew. The worth of a member of the Jewish people does not depend on his origins or any external factor, but only on his moral and spiritual qualities. You know, someone the other day was asking me a question that really should never be asked. They were asking about our synagogue. They asked a question. It was a Messianic person, so they obviously don't know what they don't know, but asked, how many in your, in your synagogue are Jews? And uh, I said, uh, everybody. And he said, they said, well, I mean, who are converts and who are Jews? I said, not allowed to ask. Not allowed to ask. And they asked about a specific person, and, uh, and they said, well, the... Uh, the last name that this person is not a Jewish last name. And I said, well, how, how is that relevant? How is that relevant? You see, I just, so this is a little note on surnames. Because when we're talking about Jewishness, um, we have to understand something. A person is a Jew according to Halakha, according to Jewish law, if they have a Jewish mother. Okay? So therefore... You have somebody with a Jewish-sounding last name, and you might think, oh my gosh, they're obviously Jewish. And not so much, because it could be that their father, who is Jewish, married a non-Jewish woman, which means that they may have the name Goldberg or Goldstein, or another famous Jewish name like Miller, or Bloom, or Smith, 
Those are all very much Jewish names. Uh, or whatever, right? But they may not be Jewish at all. I mean, really. Because it could be that, again, their father married a non-Jewish woman and the woman never converted, which means that they're not Jews. All of that is nonsense anyway, right? Again, it's not about somebody's blood, right? Anybody can join the Jewish people. Anybody can join the Jewish people. And when somebody does join the Jewish people, they are to be a Jew in every respect. And God says, I have their back. If you oppress them, if you talk down to them, if you disturb them, and the sages understood that to mean that you, you disturb them mentally. You make them, you make them uncomfortable because of the way you treat them. Then I am going to, God says, I am going to extract retribution from you for that. So again, just continue on this theme. Rabbi Monk says, The Torah discusses our duties towards the convert on 36 occasions. Listen to this. The Torah discusses our duties towards the convert on 36 occasions. This is from Baba Metziah 59b. This is unrivaled, Rabbi Monk writes, by any other commandment, whether it's a love for a shim or circumcision or dietary laws, or lying, or theft, or even Sabbath observance. The Torah talks more about protecting and guarding and loving the convert, more than it talks about observing the Shabbat, more than it talks about the kosher, more than it talks about lying or stealing. What does that tell you about what God thinks about the convert? What does it tell you about our mission? It says the first part of the verse refers to harming a convert through words. Through words. That's why I told the person who was asking me these silly questions. It says you're not allowed to ask somebody. You're not allowed. And of course, they're arguing with me about halakha, which is a whole other topic. But I said that one of the reasons you're not allowed is because you're not allowed to harm them by words. Merely asking someone if you're a convert brings up a memory that they have a past that they are probably not proud of. And so therefore, it's not allowed to ask. That's why it's not allowed to ask. It says, an example is cited in the Talmud. If a convert comes to learn Torah, do not taunt him by questioning whether a mouth that has eaten impure animals can learn the Torah given by Hashem. Baba Metziah 58b. You see? Now, one more thing on this particular topic. Orha Hayim notes that remembering the Egyptian exile keeps us from scorning the stranger. Why? The children of Israel, aware of their selection as the chosen people, might regard converts as lower-class Jews. Hence, the Torah reminds us that we are also strangers. Here we have not an act of kindness, but an imperative for justice. If Parashah Mishpatim teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is concerned about justice. He wants and desires, he wants and desires that we should treat people justly and rightly, that we should uphold um, kindness to people, and that we should take responsibility for our actions. We live in a generation that this message is 
so necessary because we live in a generation where people don't want to take responsibility for their own actions and we see the consequences of it. All right, one more thing as we conclude. Looking again at this uh, this portion, it says in verse 24, when you lend money to people, to the poor person who is with you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Do not lay interest upon them. Sleek up. So this is talking about the mitzvah of tzedakah. This is also from Pituche Chota. Just a very great insight. Kind of a, a, a this is kind of a, a sowed level uh, look at this particular mitzvah. It says the mitzvah of tzedakah, charity, and other acts of kindness are extremely powerful. As we can find the reference to this in Sukkah 49b. The reason is because of the effect they have on the Shekinah. They increase its light and they cause it to rejoice. The Shekinah is known, according to the Zohar, as Zedek, which implies judgment. When a person gives Sadaka, the Shekinah is transformed from Zedek, justice, to Sadaka, charity. When a person gives Sadaka, he unifies the letters of God's name, Yud Ke Vav Ke, as it says in, in, in um, Isaiah 32 17. The act of charity brings peace. The money that is given, the little coins, correspond and resembles the leather yud, which extend an arm of the donor corresponding to the letter vav, which resembles an outstretched arm in his hand corresponding to the letter he, which has a numerical value of five, representing the five fingers of the hand. The hand of the recipient corresponds to the final letter of the he. Furthermore, the main abundance we receive from the Shekinah comes to us through the letter he, Yud Chei, rather, of Hashem's name, the letters Shekinah hint to this as they may be arranged to say, Shekin Yah, Hashem dwells. Final thing. Through Sadaka and other acts of kindness, a person causes the name Yah to influence the Shekinah, which brings it to a state of perfection. When a person does acts of kindness and lends to his fellow, but then his fellow has difficulty repaying the loan, the, the lender must not pressure him to return the money. Otherwise, he causes the blemish to the letter Yud. Even worse, if he should lay hands upon him and say, I will not let you go until you repay me, this causes a blemish to the name of God. Reminds me of the Messiah's parable when he talked about the man who had been forgiven a great debt and he went out and found his fellow servant and he grasped him by the hands and he said pay me everything you owe me and uh, the master was not not pleased with him because he had been forgiven a great debt but yet he was making his fellow servant pay him back the lesson of all of that is we should be charitable we should give money represents our very being. Why? Because we earn money by using our minds, using our bodies, and in many cases, using our souls. And so when we get paid in money, that is a physical manifestation of something that we have given with our entire essence, which is why when we give it away, it's like laying our life down. End of our Aliyah today. With God's help, we'll be back tomorrow. May you have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing day. Shalom, shalom. We'll see everybody with God's help later. Shalom, shalom.